0: Well, in middle school, I started to get these headaches during class almost daily. And we couldn't figure out why this was happening at first. And someone suggested along the way after this was going on for a number of months that I should get my eyes checked. And I thought to myself, well, I've checked my eyes, right? Someone said, well, well, maybe you can't see the, the, the board. You can't see what the teacher's writing, and, and that's giving you headaches. But I, but I thought, I always passed the vision screenings that they do at school. You know, they, they bring all the kids into the, the gym or whatever, and they've got the board up there with all the letters on there, and the one kid after the next just repeats off the letters, and they say, okay, here you go, and, you know, you're fine. Or, oh, no, you need to go see the eye doctor or whatever, and I've never been told I need to see the eye doctor. I always passed the test. I go to school. I pass tests. That's what you do at school. I passed that test. Well, nevertheless, my parents took me to the eye doctor, and they sit you down in the chair. If you've ever been to the eye doctor, if you have glasses, or if you ever uh, needed to get glasses or whatnot, and they sit you down in the chair, and they put that apparatus, they swing that apparatus in front of your face. You know what I'm talking about, the big round deal, and it's got all these dials that they turn, and it's got these lenses that flip around, and all sorts of different ways. It looks like you need a degree just to use that thing, let alone know how an eye works. And they keep, they, they put that on there so all you can see is, is what, what you can see through that apparatus, right? And then they do this really, this really evil thing. They start switching the letters around on you, right? It's not like that at school. At school, the letters that you read off are the same letters that the person in front of you read off, that you heard them read off, right? You see what I'm getting at. So they say, read this line, and then they turn the dial and read this line. Can you read this line? And they spin the lens, and then they say A or B, B or C, C or A, and none of the letters actually matter. You just say whichever one you can see more clearly, right? And pretty soon, they pull that thing away from your face, and the eye doctor looks at you, and the eye doctor says, well, no wonder you're getting headaches. You need glasses. Wow, but I passed the test at school, (laughs) right? Turns out. Turns out the vision test at school isn't about getting the right answers, but finding out whether you can see the letters or not. And I was just kind of memorizing what the letters were. I was squinting, and I could make them out so I could get it right. Uh, But I was also doing that in class every day, all day. And sure enough, that was giving me headaches. See, that's life with weak and immature faith. That's life with weak or immature faith. You may get by, and oftentimes you may get some things right, but you're spending all your days squinting, and you're wondering why your head hurts, why things don't understand, why things don't make sense, why you don't understand, why you're struggling, why sometimes... It's not, you don't see it so clearly as someone else might, or as you feel like you should. In our passage today, Jacob is old. He's 147 years old. He's on his bed, He has to summon his strength to sit up. And it says multiple times in our passage that his eyes are dim. That's the Bible's way of saying that he's going blind, that he can hardly see. And I think that's a detail that's repeated for a reason. What is that reason? Why does it tell us that multiple times? I believe God wants us, us to see that in earthly terms, Jacob is getting old. In earthly terms, Jacob can't see well. But in spiritual terms, he's never had a more mature faith. In spiritual terms, he's never seen things more clearly in his life. And that's confirmed in Hebrews 11. If we, if we had the time to turn to Hebrews 11 and, and read it, what we would see is this great chapter of, of all those who had gone before in the Old Testament who, were, who lived by faith and, and these different episodes in their life where, where they had exhibited great faith in God, where they had trusted God instead of just merely what they could see. And you know of all the episodes in Jacob's life, you know what episode is listed for him in that chapter. This passage. This passage right here. Not when he lay his head on a rock and see a vision of heaven. Not when he knew how to make the flocks of Laban uh, grow and, and and be fruitful and multiply. Not when he came back to his father's house. Not in any of these situations is it listed. No, this passage, this passage, the writer of Hebrews says, this is when he has and shows the greatest faith. What does faith, what does mature faith look like? This morning I want to give you what I'm calling three lenses of mature faith because I can't push the seeing analogy far enough, so I'm going to give you three lenses for mature faith. I couldn't resist doing that. So, so that you can know, so that you can pursue seeing through those lenses so that you can truly see. By faith, and so here's the lenses. I'll give them to you ahead of time. Then we'll talk about each one. Mature faith looks like faith to trust God's promises. Mature faith looks like faith to follow God's ways, and mature faith looks like faith to share God's inheritance. Let's look at our first lens through which we mature faith sees. That is, faith to trust God's promises, and we see this in the first three verses of our. Of our passage frames the picture nicely. This is what it says, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Now, that sounds weird, I know, put your hand under my thigh, but we've seen this before, right? Remember Abraham with his servant? It was a way in which in the ancient Near East, they would swear a very, very important oath you put your hand under the thigh and you'd say, yeah, I'll do that thing. It says, do not bury me in Egypt. This is, this is Jacob's one request to his son as he's dying. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel, that is Jacob, right, bowed himself upon the head of his bed. You see, Jacob here is reflecting the faith of that great man of the faith, Abraham, believing the promise of God to Abraham and to his descendants. What promise is that? Well, Jacob knows that Egypt is not the land of promise. Egypt is not the land that God has given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants. He wants to be buried in that land. And even in death, for Jacob, it's about God's promises. So he insists that Joseph swear. To do it, and when Joseph does, it says that Israel bows himself, and and the text says upon the head of his bed. But the word for bed here—it's a word in the the original Hebrew language that could mean bed; it could mean staff, and that's what we see referenced in Hebrews eleven when it says that he bows bowed his head on his staff. And so, once this is sworn, like Abraham before him, he trusts that it will be done. He rests assured. He lays his head back down on his bed, knowing that when he dies, it will happen. Why? Because Joseph is so reliable? No. I mean, Joseph is reliable. Joseph has been the faithful son from the beginning, right? But not because Joseph is so reliable, because God's promises. He trusts that God will bring it about, even using human agency, even using Joseph to do it. The faith that Jacob is exhibiting is not faith in Joseph, it's faith in God and in God's promises. This is faith. They lived and acted, believing God would fulfill the promises that they knew that they wouldn't see until after they had died. That's faith. Do we have faith to see like that? That even if the thing doesn't happen while we are here on earth, even if we never see it, God will do it, and we act accordingly. And that's the faith that Hebrews 11 talks about all the way through. Well, not a faith that, that any of those people saw, but a faith that they looked forward to seeing. You see, immature faith is very short sighted. Immature faith struggles when God's promises aren't fulfilled right now. We, we want everything right now. Am I right? We want to microwave God's promises. Can I just, you know, press the quick, the quick heat button and in 30 seconds pops, it pops out nice and warm and tasty. And too often immature faith gives up on obedience and devotion to God's word and to God's promises when it isn't seeming to bring about the results it wants. Or wouldn't God want our church pews to be full right now? Wouldn't God want me to get the promotion and provide for my family right now? Wouldn't God want me to get married to that that special someone right now? Wouldn't God want us to do this thing that that, that my spouse isn't on board with yet, but but do it right now? Wouldn't God want my neighbor, my friend, my child, to believe in Him and follow Him right now? Spurgeon once wrote, Sight is cross-eyed. Views things only as they seem, hence her envy. Faith has clearer optics to behold things as they really are, hence her peace. I can imagine Jacob after Joseph swears this thing to lay his head back on his pillow in perfect, content peace knowing that the thing that is so important to him is as good as done. It's not that immature faith wants bad things necessarily, they just want their good thing when they want it and how they want it. The problem is, the problem is in how immature faith sees. Immature faith focuses more on earthly problems than on God's promises. And if you're anything like me, too often in your life, you focus on the earthly problems that are facing you in the moment rather than on God's promises. You see them as bigger in your life than God's promises, and in fact, than God is. Trusting God's promises, it's not passive though, it's, yet it is patient. It's not that we don't do anything, we just sit with our hands, you know, under our, I remember one time when I was a kid, I was with a friend and we were in the backseat and we were causing mischief and it was annoying, my friend's mom and she said, if you do one more thing, I'm going to make you sit all the way home on your hands, right? Parents ever say that? You're going to sit on your hands? It's not like we're just sitting on our hands, like, okay, God, I'm not going to do anything. I'm waiting for you to act. No, faith, faith isn't passive, but it is patient. It's ready to act. It prepares itself, but it's not presumptuous. It's steadied by God's promises more than it is shaken by our problems. And that's, frankly, hard. It's hard for me sometimes. I'll tell you a story about this from the Bible in, in 1 Samuel 13. There's an important story about King Saul. He's been a good king so far, and he and his son Jonathan have been fighting back these Philistine attackers that have been plaguing them, right? And they get in a pinch, and it says that the men of Israel that were with them to fight had scattered and hid in caves and under rocks and different places for fear of the, the Philistines. Yet they were still following Saul, but they they weren't sure how they were going to overcome this army. And and it says that the prophet Samuel had told Saul in 1 Samuel 10 to wait seven days, wait seven days, and I will show up, and I will offer sacrifices and worship to the Lord, and then I will tell you what the Lord has to say about how to approach this battle. So that's the context. And so we get to that Moments and seven days pass, and Samuel isn't found, and Saul looks around, and he goes, Samuel's not here yet. It's been seven days. He said seven days, he's not here. And I'm looking around, and all the men are scared, and it looks like they're going to scatter from my leadership, and it looks like the Philistines are going to over, overcome, and they're going to destroy us, and then what will happen to me being king, right? And so what does Saul decide to do? Well, the, the men are going to lose Their trust in him, he fears. And so he decides to go up and make the sacrifice to God himself rather than waiting for Samuel. I mean, wouldn't God want the sacrifice to be made to him? Isn't that what he wants? Wouldn't God want the men to be committed to God's anointed and appointed king for them? Wouldn't God want his people to have victory against these wicked Philistines? Wouldn't God want all of those things? Could be so bad with Saul just going up and offering a little sacrifice. And maybe God would give him a little advice and he'd know what to do. Maybe God would be on his side then and he'd know what to do. And just as Saul finishes the sacrifice, what does it say? It says that Samuel walks up just at that moment. Isn't that the way it works? Seven days he's waited. Samuel's not here. Samuel's not here. Samuel's not here. I'll find out. I'm just going to offer the sacrifice myself. And just as soon as he gets done, then Samuel strolls right up. And what's the first thing before Saul can say anything? Samuel goes, you're so foolish. What foolishness have you done? He says this. This is what Samuel says to Saul. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now you think, oh my goodness, this is a huge consequence. Just for making a little sacrifice, just for not waiting just a couple more hours, God's going to rip the whole kingdom, to rip the whole throne away from Saul and give it to someone else. That seems a little extreme, but the problem isn't the sacrifice. The problem is Saul's heart. Saul was more concerned about his approval ratings with the men than obedience. Saul was more concerned about his victory in battle than faith in the God who would give him victory and who had given him victory. And the result is that he loses his approval with God and he loses the throne. God's presence goes away from him. You see, in whatever you are facing, I want you to know this, you've got a bigger God. You've got a bigger God than that problem. And do not turn your heart away from him. Do not turn your heart away from him, but have a heart for him. Commit your heart to him and to his promises. Look upon the one who trusted his father even to the cross. Our second lens through which mature faith sees is faith to follow God's ways, and this is framed in the, the bigger portion of this passage from verse 1 to verse 20, this scene where Joseph brings his two sons before Jacob. He goes, listen, we face many decisions in life, right? Every day you're facing decisions, whether you think about them or whether you just kind of respond to them, you, you're constantly facing decisions. What do I do here? What do I do there? What should I say? What should I, whatever. And there are plenty of ways that God has directly commanded us in Scripture, and we, we've got to surrender our hearts and search God's Word. We talked about that a few weeks ago, but there isn't always a chapter and verse for every situation, right? You know, it's not like, well, what should I eat for lunch to get today? Well, okay, Ezekiel 3 says, you know, you can't you, not how it works. And what's interesting in this passage is that Jacob's actions actually allude to numerous faithful actions of his father and grandfather. If you went through this whole section and you began to check off every little thing that Jacob does that is like something that Isaac or Abraham did, you would, I, the list is long. I've seen it. I didn't compile it, someone much smarter than me compiled it, but it's like two or three dozen references all throughout this passage. Jacob is emulating the the faithful actions of his father and his grandfather. And we see this here, as he blesses these two boys, and he blesses the second first and the first second, just like his dad had blessed him first. Except his dad had done it not knowing because of Jacob's deception, but Jacob does it knowing, seeing clearly rather than his father, who couldn't see clearly and was deceived. And then when there is a rebuttal, just like Esau said, Father, isn't there something you can do? Jacob reiterates the blessing. He says, no, this is the way God wills it. And so, so it is. that Saul had disobeyed a direct command but what made David so different wasn't that he always obeyed, right? King David sinned. Uh, and you might say sinned worse than Saul's sin in offering the sacrifice. It, it would seem anyways, murdering someone, committing adultery, that's pretty bad last time I checked. But what set David apart from Saul wasn't his obedience in any particular situation, but rather that he had a heart for the Lord. It wasn't It wasn't less than checking the obedience box, but it was so, so much more. David wanted more of God. He wanted more of God's ways. He wanted more of God's promises. He wanted the Lord. And that's how we have to approach these things if we're going to have faith to follow God's ways. And I want to explain this in two sub-points that we'll see in the text. First, seeing God's ways... In God's promises from verse one to verse seven, and then seeing God's ways in God's patterns from verses eight to twenty. If we wanna have hearts that are for God, that are that are trusting in his promises, that are acting accordingly, we have to do both of these things, first see God's ways in God's explicit promises. In the first seven verses, Joseph brings his two sons before Jacob, and Jacob summons his strength, That says, and sits up, and immediately he begins to recount in verse three the promises of God that God had made to him previously when God had blessed him, when the blessing of God had gone from Isaac to Jacob. And God said that he would be fruitful and multiply him. It was God's promise to Jacob. Just like the command to Adam in the garden, but now God is a guarantor of it, that He would be company of peoples, that He would give him this promised land as an everlasting possession. And everything that Jacob is about to do, he does based on that promise, The promises that he's stating here are not merely just the promises that God gave him at Luz. If you, if you go back and you look at what Jacob says here and you look at what God said in Luz, it's actually all of that and more. In fact, Jacob is also echoing the words of God to Abraham and to Isaac. So, so as the, he, he's taking all of the promises that God gave to Abraham and all the promises that God gave to Isaac and all the promises that God gave directly to him and he's taking them all together and he's saying all of these promises still apply. Based on those promises, this is what I'm going to do. And and, and this is a little confusing for us. This is something that, that we wouldn't expect to have happen. Basically, Jacob says, Joseph, your first two sons, the sons that you had in Egypt before I came and found out that you were still alive, before I came here to Egypt to see you, these two sons, they're going to be my sons. And we think, well, that's weird. Is Jacob stealing his sons? That's kind of strange what I want you to understand, he's not just like taking his sons, right? It's not like a possessive thing. What he's doing is he's elevating Joseph's two sons a generation higher. He's saying, your sons are as if they're just like Reuben and Simeon, as if they're my sons. And so this double portion, what he's doing is he's blessing Joseph with a a double portion. Usually the firstborn would get a double blessing amongst all the brothers. And what Jacob is doing is he's saying, that double portion, I'm going to give one half of that double portion to one of your sons and one half of that double portion to your other son. So Joseph, you get a double portion because I'm adopting your sons into the next generation up on the family tree. Imagine if you're, uh, let's say, when your uh, parent passes away and they have a, la- a will, and they give uh, whatever they have to their children, right? And let's say you have a few. Uh, my dad, when, when, my, when my grandma and grandpa passed, when my grandpa passed away, my dad has one of five siblings, and so all that my grandpa had was split five ways, each one to each of his siblings, right? Well, in, in ancient Near East, what would happen is it would be split six ways. The firstborn would get two portions, and everyone else would get one portion, right? And so here we're looking at Jacob, and he's, got, he's going to give out 13 portions to his 12 sons. Rather than giving the double portion to his firstborn son, we'll get into why that is next week a little bit. If you remember, Reuben had some issues. But he's elevating Joseph's two sons so that he has, in essence, 13 sons. And he's giving the double portion to Ephraim and Manasseh. This would be a huge upgrade for Ephraim and Manasseh. A monumental shift, if you will, for them. Both in wealth, but, but even more importantly, in position. And even more importantly than that, in God's blessing. Because this isn't just Jacob's stuff. That he's passing on. It is the very blessing of God that God gave Abraham in Genesis 12 to be a people and to bless all the world through him. So, why does Jacob do this? Well, First, or it seems I should say, one based on the, the the blessing that God had given him before. But second, he looks at the fact that Rachel, his wife that he loved, died early in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. It was of all of his wives, and that's a whole different story, right? We've talked about, but of all of his wives, she has given him the least number of sons, though he loved her the most. Though, he, though she was the one he was supposed to marry first and only, originally. And so by elevating Joseph's two sons, he's essentially given Rachel another son in the, in the, in the inheritance. The point for us is this. God has made explicit promises to his people in his word. Listen, if you're a Christian, He's adopted you as His children through His only Son in order that we might share in His inheritance. And He has given us His Spirit to reside in us as a guarantee of those promises. And these promises don't always tell us exactly what to do in a given situation, but they can serve as a mirror to us through which we can examine our own hearts. Asking the Holy Spirit to help us? Are my decisions founded in those promises? Ask yourself, are are my decisions founded in those promises, or are they founded in something that someone else is promising? Are they founded in the promises of God, or are they founded in the promises of the world? When I step into the unknown, is it because God promised that I do that, or is it because the world is promising me something? So we got to see God's ways in God's promises, but we also need to see God's ways in God's patterns. Oddly, that first part doesn't even shock Joseph whatsoever. Joseph is just like, hey, awesome. But it's the second part that Joseph has a problem with, right? And what happens? Verse 8, Jacob can't see, it says again, and he says, "Who, who are these? Who are these? Who are these? Who are these two sons? Joseph says, these are my sons, Jacob, and Jacob says, bring them here so I can bless you as I bless them, right? And the text reiterates in verse 10, the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see, and, and Jacob hugs them and he praises God, he says, man, I never thought I would see you, Joseph, again, and yet here I am, I'm seeing your sons, which is ironic because it just said that he can't see. Joseph sets his sons before him so that, so that his right hand would be on the head of the firstborn and his left hand would be on the head of the secondborn. But what does Jacob do? Jacob reaches out to bless them and he goes like this. And he switches his arms. And he blesses them. Backwards. Why? Joseph tries to correct him. Oh, dad, you, you, you can't see that is okay. You know, you're kind of old, you can't see. Here, let me, let me just kind of get your hands in the right place. And, and Jacob's like, no, no, actually you can't see. I can see. This is how it's to be. If you're in your brain, you're thinking, gosh, this scene sounds a little bit familiar. This whole thing sounds a little bit familiar to, to me. Then you may be remembering that Jacob himself was second, yet received the first blessing. And like I said, Esau objected to Isaac, and Isaac reiterated the blessing to him, that that was God's order, that was how God had ordered it, and it cannot be reversed. That's the way it's supposed to be. And Jacob looked back at God's pattern, or looked back at God's ways, and he saw a pattern. He saw that it was Abel, not Cain. He saw that it was Japheth, not Shem. He saw that it was Isaac, not Ishmael. He saw that it was Jacob, not Esau. By faith, Jacob followed the pattern, trusting that God would work it out, By faith, he saw that from the beginning, the second born was getting the blessing, not the first. Over and over and over and over again, that must be how God operates. That's how I will operate, Jacob says. God's word not only contains God's promises, which by faith we trust may work out in a variety of ways in our lives, but also God's word contains God's character and God's work, and how He does things, which provides patterns for us to follow in our life. I said a few weeks ago that the Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything, but I promise you the Bible tells you something about everything. It may not give you instructions for how to run your business, but it tells us something about how we ought to work hard, and how we ought to care and provide for our family, and how we ought to have accurate weights and measures in our business dealings, etc., It may not tell me what house I should buy, but it does tell me something about how I should think about debt and money. It tells me something about how I should think about evangelism and and incarnation in my neighborhood. It tells me something about how I ought to be a part of a church. There are promises and there are patterns, not just chapters and verses, friends, and we need to be looking for them. Now you say, "Uh, look, so long as I, so long as I don't commit some sin. Is is not one option as good as the other in God's eyes, Cody? And can God not use either of these two things? And to the second question, I say, yes, God can use either of them. And thanks be to God that He is sovereign, and by His grace, no matter what I do, He will providentially use all things for the good of His children. Praise God that that is true, because I would be in a world of trouble if it wasn't. I mean, I'd be in a world of trouble, and that should be a supreme comfort to us that God works this way for for the good of His children. But, But to the first question, whether or not each option is equally good in God's eyes, I would emphatically say no. No, it is not equally good. And one is better fitted to God's promises and patterns than the other, even if We wouldn't consider either of them sinful necessarily. God is beckoning us by faith to go farther up and farther into all that He has for us in His promises and His patterns to learn how to love Him. It says with all of His heart, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. love Him with all the areas of our life, not just the areas where someone has told us a specific chapter and verse that tells us what to do in that area, but to commit all to Him as we commit our hearts to Him. God is looking for people who whose hearts are for the Lord. He's looking for King David's, not King Saul's. And here's the bigger problem. While these may be areas of conscience in our life, God wants our consciences to actually be bent towards Him. Yeah, if neither option is outright sin, but we disregard or make no attempt to discern what might be aligned with faith in God's ways, The action may not be sinful, but are our hearts not sinful? If I look at the two options and I say, I don't care what God thinks. I'll just do what I want because there's no chapter and verse that I know that says I ought not to do that. I never pay attention to what God might want me to do. I never sit and pray and go, Lord, what would you want me to do if my heart's not leaned towards him? My action may not be sinful, but is my heart not sinful? Because all I'm thinking about is myself, not the Lord. All I'm thinking about is what I want, not what he wants. All I'm thinking about is what, what I might, what promise I might have for myself rather than what promise he has for me. And listen, here's the deal his ways are better than yours. And his promises are better than the promises the world is offering you. He's not trying to take away from you, he's trying to give to you. Because he's a good father who loves his children. I see my kids sometimes. They get mad because they say, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, and I say, no, right? And they might, in that moment, think, oh, that's mean. Dad's being a, a grump. But in reality, I have something better for them. Reality, I'm protecting them. Listen, either because we're too lazy to pursue God or because we're too rebellious. We want our hearts to be bent towards our desires rather than our hearts to be bent towards God's desires. We fail to see by faith that the greatest freedom that we can have is submitting ourselves to God in every way, every way, every way. Do we have do we have faith do we have faith to trust God's promises? Do we have faith to follow god's ways and third the third way that this passage frames mature faith do we have faith to share god's inheritance and this we see this in verses twenty one and twenty two and I admit these last two verses they can be a little tricky to translate. To understand, we kind of ask these questions. Why does, he, why does he see it as so important to remind Joseph in verse 21 about the promised land? Is it because part of his double portion is the land that he's giving him in verse 22? Is it because he wanted his son to be reminded, his, his son who is by now mostly Egyptianized, right? And he wanted this Egyptianized son to remember where his true home is, where he, he came from, the promised land. And that could be one issue. And then there's this tricky bit in verse 22 where the ESV, it translates, uh, it, translates it one mountain slope. But this, this phrase that's translated one mountain slope, it could be, a, it could be a, a, the word for shoulder or a ridge. That's hence the slope part. It's like the, the shoulder of the mountain. Could also be translated portion and, and, and scholars are not sure well, which word is the best way to translate it. It's kind of one of those places where it's, a little bit foggy. The Hebrew word also sounds like the word Shechem, and, and, and that's where Jacob actually owned a piece of land, and so it makes sense that he would be saying, hey, here's my land, this shoulder. In, in the Hebrew, the word is, sounds a lot like Shechem, and, and, and that is actually where Joseph's bones will one day be re-interned when 400 years later the people of Israel leave Egypt. So, we have a number of issues here that we're kind of like, how do we take these two verses? So, I'll give you my opinion on it, okay? And I'm not the greatest scholar, uh, certainly not the greatest Hebrew scholar, but in my reading, and my research, this is my opinion. I say yes to all of it. I say yes to all of it. Yeah, I think it's all that. None of it contradicts And oftentimes what we see is in the Old Testament, things can have double meanings. Things can mean this here and also mean that there, and it actually means both of them. And it's intended to mean both of them. And so, it's not contradictory to say that the land is the same land near Shechem, which is also a mountainside in which Joseph will one day be buried. It's not contradictory to say, or it doesn't confuse anything to say that yeah, that's exactly what he intended. He intended him to remember the promised land and also to know that's your place. You won't go there in your life, but you ought to be buried there just like earlier I had just told you, bury me in the promised land. So too, you ought to be. Follow my example just as I'm following the example of my fathers. You see, at the While at the beginning, Jacob says to, to bury me where my fathers are buried, he passes on to Joseph a piece of the promised land that, that he had acquired, and he gives it to Joseph, this plot of land. plot of land he will never possess in his life. And, and they're sitting there, and they both know he will never possess this land in his life. In this moment, they know he's not moving from Egypt. He will... They know that Joseph will die in Egypt, and yet they trust that one day they will leave there, even if it's far after they died. One day they will go back to the place where God says his presence will dwell with his people. In other words, he is giving him something tangible and earthly, but he is also passing on to him his faith something tangible and heavenly at the same time. And when we see, when we are seeing by faith that this is, this is what we do, we, we, we make Jesus known, we, we, we pass on to people things that are tangible, we, we, we live towards people the way in which Christ would live towards people, but we also pass on to them things that are tangible and heavenly. The gospel, we proclaim it to them. We know that this may not produce an immediate effect, no different than the fact that Joseph didn't go immediately and take hold of this Lot of land, and yet we do it because that's what God's called us to do, and we trust that if we do that, God will work and He will bring us to the land, and He will bring others to the land. In Christ, this is not just limited to our children either, but to all those who would be God's children. But it shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be less than our children, parents. Are you passing on? Are you sharing God's inheritance that He's given you in Christ to your kids? How are you seeking to pass on that inheritance of faith in God and and salvation that, that you have received yourself? As Christians, our highest calling is not to die with something on our will to pass on to our kids. Our highest calling is to pass on the faith that God has given to us, to our children. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week, and even this evening. But I, I think I would, be, it would, I would miss a, an important application if I didn't say this. Remember, Jacob is adopting his grandchildren to pass on that faith to his grandchildren. And listen, I think this passage ought to be a great encouragement to grandparents. It ought to make us think Not to make grandparents think, and Jacob's kids were a little hit and miss, right? We've gone through Genesis; there were uh, some of them were a little touch and go, right? Some things were good, and there's a lot of things that were bad. And I think that there are a lot of grandparents who look back and think, "Ah, "Man, if I had known, maybe I'd have done this different. Maybe I'd have done that different." I wonder if Jacob thought that on his bed. I should have parried these boys a little different than I did. But Jacob sees the opportunity to pass on his faith faith to his grandkids. That God has put him in his grandkids' lives for a reason. That, that he never thought he'd see Joseph, but here he is seeing his grandchildren, the children of Joseph, and he has an opportunity here. And it reminds me of, of 2 Timothy 1.5, where it says how Timothy, uh, uh, Timothy's grandmother, Lois, had passed on her faith to her, his mother and then passed on the faith to him. And I think sometimes, grandparents, we forget the impact that we can have in the lives of our grandchildren, the impact that God would want us to have. Then again, maybe you don't share in this inheritance at all. Perhaps you're here and you have, you would say, oh, I don't have an immature faith, I have no faith. You're like a child who's become blind. You can hear and you can smell. You can even feel your father all over the house, but you can't see him, so you've decided he doesn't exist. Or if he does exist, well, I can't see him, so how will I know him, really? I can't see him clearly, so how will I know him, so there's no point in seeking him? And though evidence of him surrounds you, you've declared, I've got no father, and you live in this world, and he sustains you, but you are outside of his family, Here's what God promises. I want you to know what God promises. He, he promises, if you want to go it alone now, you will go it alone for eternity. That's what he promises. But that's not what he wants because he has another promise, another way, another inheritance, one that comes through faith. The Father has given his one and only Son, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life that we didn't and can't, and he perfectly trusted the Father's promises even to the cross in death for our sins. And if you look to him, if you look to Christ by faith, then you will see him. And when you see him, you'll see the Father. And those who come to the Son, He promises He will never cast out, never, ever. And those who trust in the Son, He promises He'll adopt into His family. And the promise is an eternal inheritance, a promised land of dwelling in God's presence. You see, Hebrews 11.1 tells us this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith doesn't disregard evidence or facts or reason. Faith in Christ sees the world and how it works and knows the Father exists. Faith sees God's ways in history and in His Word and says, that's a reasonable conclusion. Faith sees God's promises and realizes His Word is more trustworthy than our perspective right here and right now. You see, we may think that we can see but without faith, you can't actually understand that which you think you know. I remember vividly that moment after I'd gone to the eye doctor and the eye doctor said, you need to get glasses. And then we went to the, to the, to the eyeglass store with our prescription and they made my glasses. I remember vividly that moment when I first put those glasses on in, in the Lins crafters in Westridge Mall in Topeka, right? And I'm sitting there and I put the glasses on and I look across the atrium of the, the mall and I see the, the shop signs and I read them and I think to myself, it suddenly dawns on, me they weren't foolish in designing those signs so that people couldn't quite read them my whole life for like 14 years I thought why did they make the signs that size you can't quite read them no one can read them why didn't they make them just a little bit bigger and then I realized no the problem isn't the signs the problem is my eyes the problem is I can't see guys the problem isn't God the problem is you're not looking you need to put on the lenses of faith Fanny Crosby, you may not know who she is. She spent most of her life blind. She was born in 1820 in New York. When she was two months old, she became ill. The family doctor was away, and so they called a different doctor in, but it turned out that doctor wasn't a doctor at all. He's just pretending to be a doctor. And, he, and Fanny recovered from her illness, but the, the treatment that he gave, this treatment of, of putting these... Um, applications on her eyes, they ended up leaving her blind for the rest of her life. It's tragic. It's horrible. No, he didn't. He skipped town. They never saw him again. He, she could have grown up and she could have said, this is horrible that, that someone would do such injustice to me, that he would, that he would uh, wrong me so bad and that, that, that he has gone unpunished the rest of his life and I have to sit here blind my whole life. I can't see anything. How could God do this to me? Uh, but Fanny had faith in Christ. And at eight, she started memorizing the Bible since she couldn't read it. And God had given her a gift of poetry. And as she grew older, she began to write hymns and poems to God that were begin to be set to music. And she became the most, one of the most prolific hymn writers in American history. One of her famous hymns is entitled, To God Be the Glory. And the second verse of that hymn goes like this. It says, Great things he has taught us, great things he has done, and great are rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our joy and our wonder when Jesus we see. Fanny Crosby believed one day she would see Jesus with her own eyes. And the chorus says, and come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. Let's pray.